Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Lee Ander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the fate of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview one of Europe's top jazz musicians, the saxophone player from the Netherlands, Yuri Hornin. Hello, everybody. This is Leander Young from Improv Exchange. And today we are honored to have a guest all the way from the Netherlands, Jorin Hornen. How are you doing today, sir? I'm, uh, I'm doing fine, Leonard. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, f- I feel pretty good today. Okay, thanks. Well, could you please introduce yourself to the people, please? Well, um, I'm Dutch. I'm from Amsterdam, to be precise. I'm 55. I'm a saxophone player, composer. Uh, I'm a sculptor as well. Um, I've been into music since I was five, making my money with music since I was 14, and got into jazz like um, around that age, and uh, ever since been touring until uh, late March. When Corona happened, I assume, correct? When Corona happened, yeah. Uh, in the meantime, I, um, uh, you know, I won some prizes. We have what we call the Edison Jazz Award, which is like uh, the Dutch Grammy. I won three of them, and I got the Boy Edgar Prize, which is um, the main prize we have in this country for people who contribute for a long time to the development of the field. Um, Besides that, I worked with a lot of European musicians, Japanese musicians, and a lot of Americans, actually, as well. Um, I enjoyed working with Paul Blay, Pat Nettini, Greg Taborn, Kurt Rosenwinkel, many others, actually. So basically, that is like more or less in the, in sixty seconds what I'm doing. Yeah, that is the quickest introduction I've ever received on the show. But I'm not <laughs> going to argue it. Well, I know of you from your single. After all, I actually heard it when I was in Singapore in a restaurant, and I'm like, I never heard this song, which kind of messed me up. By the way, you have a big following in Singapore, if you didn't know. Oh, that's great to hear. And. Sazam is your best friend sometimes, or at least mine. So that came up, and there. And also, I noticed that you have a new album, Bluebeard. Yeah. My favorite track on that is A Bits of Paradise. I love that. So, oh, yeah. Well, that, that one is actually based on an American novel inspired by um, uh, Jennifer Gerald. After, you know, the, the writer of uh, The Great Gatsby. Yes. What, what, what? Is that its own book? I'm not really... No, no, it's not a songbook. It's a, it's a book from the American literature. Uh, no, I meant, I know the book, The Great Gatsby. I'm just saying, where, where did he write a book or a novel called The Bits of Paradise? Because I don't know much yes, about it. Yes, okay. yes, he did. It's short stories about him and his, uh, his wife. Okay. I learned something new there. I know people are probably laughing that I should know that as an American. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, a long time ago, you know. So what else about that album since we're talking about that right now? Uh, well, it's it's loosely based on the, um, uh, on a French fairy tale of uh, uh, you know a, a guy Bluebeard who um, wants to marry a woman and and she wants to marry him as well and he walks her around in his castle and explains to her you can go anywhere except this little place uh, I won't give you the key uh, you're not allowed to get in. Uh, I have to travel tonight and I leave. And in short, she, of course, takes a look in the small room and finds there uh, the dead corpses of like seven of her um, previous uh, wives that went before her. 
Um, that is basically the fairy tale. So like a moral warning for young women to be careful with who you go. Um, but I got interested by um, uh, Miss Millet, an American um, writer who was actually the first female Pulitzer Prize winner in history. And she wrote a sonnet on Bluebird in, by which, um, you know, uh, when she enters the room, the room is empty. There's nothing there, so it's an idée fixe. But Bluebeard gets very angry nonetheless, and um, but he doesn't threaten to kill her. He just says, well, you know what? You can have my castle. I'll seek another place. I found that a very interesting um, turn. So that was the start of Bluebeard for me. Wow. Uh, that made me enjoy the album that much more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And you have a unique way of writing music, I must say. And you were mentioning before that it's mainly because you're 100% more classical trained on the part. Yeah, well, basically, that, was, that is my background. You know, my father was a piano player, my mother was. And, um, and we were all very deeply into the repertoire, which was just a logical thing. Um, so, you know, my father would turn up the radio at home during dinner and would ask, well, who's the composer? Any idea who the players are? Would it be a German, a French, or an English orchestra we're listening to? You know, questions like that. But he had a weak spot for jazz because, um, you know, to make money, he was a, an engineer for a Dutch broadcast company. So he recorded, actually, Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and guys like that and was very impressed. He actually thought, you know, jazz players were the real players. And uh, so... But I was still deeply into classical music until we went on holiday in 1976. We were in the mountains as usual in Switzerland and we heard music. So my father just drove us down and we ended up in Montreux. And there was this big terrace. And I was walking up the terrace and there was Dexter Gordon and Woody Shaw, Stan Getz, George Duke, uh, Maynard Ferguson, um, you know, uh, Billy Copham. And everybody was like having a lot of fun, a lot of beautiful women. And it was just such a, the opposite of the world that I worked in, the classical music, which was basically no fun. You just have to study your ass off all day. And uh, my father actually bought tickets for that evening, which was called the Montreux Summit. So we went in and the concert started at eight with the Stanley Clark group, who just had released School Days. And then two hours later, the Montreux Summit started, which was like, you know, 16 musicians on stage. Everybody was there, including Bobby Humphrey, Bob James, well, all sorts of players. Um, Eric Gale, I still remember. And um, they played a concert that took like six hours without a break. And the one that really knocked me out was like half past three in the morning was Stan Getz playing Infant Eyes with Bob James. And then I, we went to the hotel room and the next morning at 10.30, I woke up with the most beautiful saxophone sound I ever heard in my life. And, you know, on the balcony next to me, there was Stan Getz in his bathrobe, just playing some saxophone outside. And I just thought, man, I should get into this stuff because this is the real thing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, well, to, a lot of stuff came from that. So first of all, a classical family is saying that jazz musicians are the real musicians. That first part was just like, okay. <laughs> Normally not the case. 
I well, you know, like, like my father said, we, we have like one of the, the great orchestras, symphony orchestras in the world, is, is the Amsterdam Concertgebouw Orchestra. And my father used to call that orchestra, which he recorded many, many times, the biggest cover band of Holland. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we love classical music. There's nothing, you know, it's not, there's no data in that, but it's just, you know, it's always good to make some fun of it because in those days, well, uh, maybe even nowadays, you know, people think that classical musicians are, you know, more exceptional than other musicians. Uh, uh, but, you know, they're just, they're exceptional in a very specific discipline, which is to reproduce the music that the composer made, you know, and of course there are excellent players that are on top of that even, which I love. But, you know, jazz musicians, if you, um, you, know, I'm, you know, I've heard Miles Davis for like 20 times at least. That is, that is something else. <laughs> the next, you know, yeah, keep going, keep going, keep going, man. Well, you know, you don't have to compare it. It's just an end, end story. You know, it's just, um, I love classical music. I love jazz music. I love... Brazilian music, especially the northern eastern part of Brazil, so Milton Nascimento, Hermeto Pascual. I love um, from Rajasthan, which is like uh, northeastern India, a lot of Sufi music. I studied Arab music for like almost 10 years, quite seriously. And uh, I'm, I'm deeply into pop music as well. If it's good stuff, it's good stuff. I don't make any difference between the music of Ravel uh, you know, a great Neil Young recording or uh, or one of the old classics, you know, um, early Sonny Rollins or Coltrane in 64, 65, stuff like that. Okay. Like I said, this is a lot to process and I'm loving it, but let's go to Stan Gass for a second. So you saw Stan Gass right there in this room yeah, playing the saxophone. Did you get to speak to him at least? No, no, no. Uh, and I was way too shy. You know, it took me a couple of years to understand how you do that. Um, so after five years, I found out you just have to get backstage with a bottle of whiskey or something and just give something first and then ask a question. You know, that's, uh, that's the way how I got a private lesson from Freddie Herbert for 20 minutes or so. Uh, uh, no, Stan, get Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're okay. Freddie Herbert, just <laughs> He was playing in Holland in a small radio broadcasting uh, thing. And uh, that was Freddie Hubbard in a time that he was just like the most incredible trumpet player that I ever heard in my life. And just thought, you know, how does he do it? So I went backstage with a bottle of Jack Daniels and I just gave it to him. And he said, well, thank you. How can I help you? I said, well, can you, me can you explain to me how you study? So he did in 20 minutes. Uh, so that that is you know very very cheap for such a device, just one bottle of whiskey. Um, but to get back to Stan Getz, it's um, you know for me the Holy Virgin Mary is um, Lester Young. He's like you know I would be nowhere without Lester Young. Lester Young is the start of everything in my mind, and Stan Getz is of course quite close to Lester sound wise at least, and the half legato. But what I really liked of him, which I always like of all these great players, is that they play the saxophone so well, you know, in every sense. And everything is always so melodically with Stan Getz, and everything always sounds beautiful. I never heard one wrong or ugly note by this guy. Not once. It's a miracle. 
Now, were you able to meet Lester also? No, okay. <laughs> in my dreams. Okay. <laughs> and sometimes he shows up very, very suddenly, halfway a solo or something. Then suddenly there's Lester Young. It's just, I don't know how these things work. Okay. They move so, on. But of trumpet players that listen who are probably jealous of you, really, teach, tell us more about, he- I mean, Freddie <laughs> Hubbard. <laughs> <idea>. Okay. <laughs> Well, you, uh, uh, you know, there were two trumpet players that kind of uh, knocked me out. Freddie Herbert was the first one because he, you know, in those days, it's, um, you know, I, I grew up with the stuff, the, the V2P band by Herbie, Herbie Hancock, mm-hmm. Wayne and Freddie. And uh, and later on, he joined the Chikoria group or the Lenny White group, I think, uh, the Griffith Park collection. And the live recording of that uh, band, if you hear... F- Freddie Howard played it. That's just a miracle. You know, technically he was just uh, unbeaten. And the other guy that really knocked me out that I met many times uh, was Woody Shaw. Because he he stayed in Europe a lot. And Holland was like, uh, you know, a comfortable place for him to be. So he played this very small cafe in Hilversum where I studied. And uh, you just, you could just get in for nothing have a beer and listen to Woody Shaw all night long, you know? And he, he learned me so much. There was like this little song that I never knew how to play it uh, called What's New. And he played it and he played it in, in an incredible, beautiful way. And I immediately knew, oh, this is the way, this is how I should play it. Uh, very impressive trumpet player as well. Yeah. Okay, so... How did your parents take it when you said you're going to focus more on jazz music? <laughs> well, um, my mother was not happy. <laughs> uh, she was quite sad. And my piano teacher, who was a former, uh, you know, um, star in the classical world, she wasn't happy either because she thought I had the most talent of, of the whole family for piano. But I said, well, you know, I got this record from Vladimir Askenazi. And I put it on and I listened to it very carefully. But, you know, that kind of talent isn't there. So I can go studying the rest of my life, but I will end up being a teacher in some small village or something, teaching kids with no talent at all uh, some music. I don't want it. I don't want to waste my life. Uh, But I made it up with my mother because years later, I think in 2002, somewhere around that time, I recorded uh, Schubert's Winterreise. And later on, even uh, 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 Bach's Brandenburg's Concerten. So she was actually, when I recorded Schubert, she called me in tears that she was so happy that not everything she raised me with was gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now now she's still alive. She's very old now. But she's she's very proud now. She's, uh, you know, very happy that I made my choices. And we still play Winterreise together now for fun. You know? Okay. <laughs> so, tell me more about the Dutch scene right now. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Right now, the scene is in big trouble. Uh, because most of these musicians in Holland, you know, besides the fact we have a very lively scene, uh, and especially in Amsterdam, they're seriously good players. Uh, there's a lot of information, a, a lot of talent. It's very international. There are a lot of exchange programs, actually. I teach a 
just a few hours at the conservatory, a lot of exchange students, uh, especially from Los Angeles and uh, Philadelphia and New York. And uh, it's a pretty good scene. But, uh, you know, the COVID stuff is uh, doing a lot of harm. And in Holland, there's um, probably like in the States as well, there's very little um, concern uh, about supporting the arts in general. So, like, you know, Angela Merkel of Germany, she just puts one and a half billion into the cultural field because of the crisis. The same, actually, Boris Johnson did and the same Macron did. But here, the you know, the, the prime minister that we have in this country doesn't spend a euro on culture. So a lot of companies are in, prob in trouble and a lot of musicians are in trouble, basically. Because most musicians, you know, uh, it's hard to make a lot of money. So it's hard to make, um, you know, to have a savings account that you can live on for a longer time. It's probably the same in, in New York, I guess, because, you know, you also have these outrageous rents and, uh, and stuff like that. Well, a lot of the people I know in the New York scene, they left. A good yeah. amount of them I also know said this is the last straw, like they're giving up on it, which is something I'm upset about. Yes, it's horrible. And uh, that's going to hurt the jazz scene in like 10, 20 years greatly, because some of them I know, like one of them just enlisted to the military. He's like, yep, I need stability. Yeah. And yeah. I have a couple of friends who are just, you know, they're working grocery stores now. They just gave up. And uh, Amsterdam is, is bloody expensive. In, you know, in the past 10 years, uh, rents have been tripled. And um, so most, most people leave the city now because it's just, uh, it's too troubling to stay. Mm. So it, it's more or less the same situation as New York, but less horrible is my guess. But indeed not very good, you know. It's, I'm very worried about the future of this music anyway. Um, because there's so little support in the end. I agree. That's one reason why I decided to start this podcast. But before I forget also, which conservatory do you teach at? Just so the people know. Oh, at the Conservatory of Amsterdam. Okay. Nice. Man. I give a, you know, what they call progressive jazz. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I'm not alone. <laughs> That's how they call it, you know? yeah, no, I can't even explain to you what that could mean, you know. And I give a little uh, a course for composition because a lot of jazz musicians are a bit afraid of composition or they're a bit, you know, distracted by the wrong things in composition. So I try to help them out with some advice. And what is one thing they're distracted by? Uh, to put structure above melody, to name one. So, you know, if I, you know, I give them an assignment, you should compose something for next week and then they, co they come up with a suite. And uh, a lot of, you know, meter changes, key changes, a lot of slash chords and whatever. And I look at the sheets and I always say, so where's the melody? You know, you just need one bar that puts everything together. Like, that's all you need. And you can just, you know, you can write the rest of the song in 10 minutes. The work is in just finding this one signature bar. And to find that, you have to use your imagination. Well, I always seem to have, how should I put it? I have friends that were, oh, especially when I was an undergrad, who were trying to impress versus, you know, entertain. And the people they were trying to impress were the selective few that actually understood what was going on? Yeah, which limits your crowd base. 
Yep. So that was something that I understand where you said that. Hence why I was asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also, I'm also, um, I'm in it with one leg, which I call, which I explain to students like, you know, show business. Show business basically is that you're on stage. People want to see that you are aware that you're on stage. And, you know, usually there are couples coming by for concerts. So, you know, the guy pays for dinner. He pays for the drinks and he pays for the concert. The woman just wants to be inspired, you know, that evening. Because if she is inspired, romance will follow. So, you know, the guy will get what he wants. That's also a part of our, our business. Oh, you just summarize so well why jazz clubs are empty. <laughs> there's no woman over there, man. There's no it's woman just... in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, you know, it's life is simple. It's about these simple things and you have to be aware of it. Also, I think that, you know, good stuff is basically always easy to listen to. But if you listen carefully, you figure out the complications. But if you hear only complications, you're missing the point. It's, uh, you know, I can put up on anything that Miles ever recorded to anyone and everybody will like it. They'll find it interesting. But if you listen carefully, you'll hear all these little, you know, stuff and complications. It's the same with, with the repertoire of Duke Ellington uh, and, and so many others. And I like it when you just, you can choose your own layer, you know? Okay. So where do you think jazz will be in 10 years? <laughs> I don't know. We're not dead yet. Uh, um, you know, I'm not giving up. And if I'm not giving up, there are a lot of people who will refuse to give up. And the people that I work with never give up. Because as long as you don't give up, you can't lose. But, you know, it, it will be tough. That's the thing that is certain. It will be tough. But, okay. you know, then in the end, maybe, you know, the guys and girls who stay put... You know, maybe they get, uh, uh, how do you call it? You know, uh, oh, I forgot the word, damn it. Constellation prize? Eddie? Oh, you know, they, they, they get the appreci appreciation that they, they might deserve after such a long time. Ah, but, that's but no it, way to live. You know, <laughs> it, will be, it will be tough. But, you know, sorry for me asking and not knowing, but you're a player yourself, right? Yes, I'm a percussionist. Percussionist. Yes. All right. There are lots of jokes on us, I know. Oh, yeah, but on saxophone players as well, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's endless. Um, so, are, does the next generation still have an interest in jazz, at least, over there? Yeah, they do. Um, and um, they've always had, because it's also, there's a layer in jazz music that is also, you know, young people. What I found really remarkable, um, I'm on Spotify, which in Europe is the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you, you, you can get into your own statistics. So my thought was, you know, being 55 and making, you know, this type of music, um, you know, I probably have listeners that are all like above 40 or something. Uh, but it turns out that I have just as many listeners between 20 and 30 as I have between 50 and 60 which uh, I thought was, you know, reassuring and very comforting. And it was a 50-50 um, dividation between uh, men 
and women, which I thought was interesting as well. Uh, yes, there will be, you know, young people are interested in this music, but you, you, know, you never have to explain it to them. You just do it. And if you do the real thing, they'll get it. You know, uh, I once was, uh, I did school concerts. I used to do school concerts like, uh, um, yeah, like a secondary school. And a lot of these schools were like, uh, well, you know, not very highly educated people with disciplinary trouble, if I may put it this way. So all these teachers were, you know, explained to me, well, just be careful with them. They, you know, they can't concentrate for longer than eight minutes. Don't make it too difficult. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I thought, well, fuck it. So I had a trio back then and we played Ornette Coleman for 50 minutes nonstop. And they just loved it. <laughs> So, you, you know, I think the real thing is the real thing. Um, yeah. I'm just saying there are probably a few people listening that are jealous of you. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any rising stars over there that I don't know about or the people here might not know about? No, not no, not really. Not right now. I'm, I'm, it's, you know, talent is not the only thing that you need to... Um, to figure things out. Uh, zeitgeist is another one. And the third one is experience. Now, it, it's been, it became much, much harder for young musicians to get enough experience, which is like the most heavy thing to gain. It takes the longest time, you know. For me, when I grew up, when I was 14, I just, you know, I lived in the, near a neighborhood in my town with a lot of rich people. So that was an easy trick. I just, you know, I made a small band that played like, you know, comfortable music. And we just played every party every week uh, in some kind of villa that was just bought by some guy. And um, we were just making a lot of money from the very start, just with playing parties. But these things all have changed. And also like, you know, we used, I used to have a lot of radio gigs, paid radio gigs. And nowadays, even when you're on radio, they never pay you anymore. And the same was with uh, with television. There was, you know, you used to get like six hundred dollars if you just had a uh, you know a song that you played on television. Nowadays, they say, well, it's, this is free promotion for your own product, so they don't pay yeah, you. Yeah, everyone knows that one. There are jokes and memes on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exposure. <laughs> different platforms to make some money. And of course, you know, Spotify is not really making the money that you need, but it's making some. And I'm just in search of other platforms to find new ways to make some money. Uh, but it's not easy, but especially for young people, because that was your question. It's, it's, a, it's a tough road, you know. Um, but it's been tough for Jess in earlier times as well. Um, but the, the, the difference is that it seems that society is not really society anymore. You what know, do you mean by that? Uh, well, it's not... Uh, how can I explain? <sighs> it's like, you know, I read today some... Who was it? Yeah, Robert Radford put a thing out on the internet. And he said, well, you know, we should call our country the divided states of America. And we have the same thing in Holland in a way that is, people don't take care anymore for each other. You know, it's everybody's just thinking of themselves... And the only value that we seem to have is money and uh, economic growth. 
So as long as the economy is growing and some people are making money, you know, uh, that's, that's what it's about. There's nothing else left. While culture and music especially brings people together. That's the essential thing of it. It's even more powerful than sports, you know. And people don't realize it enough, I think, because if you ask somebody my age, you know, what are your best memories from when you were 18? And you ask as a second question, what music went along with that? You'll find out, like everybody else, that music is like your hard drive for all kinds of important moments in your life. It's a memory bank. Um, also, it's it's the best way to heal, you know, good stuff. In my baddest, darkest times, I always had a bunch of speakers with me, with my own music. Not my own music, but, you know, the music of my choice. Just to feel safe. And I know from War Child, which is like a big organization in Europe, and they help out a lot of kids um, who were like victims of the wars in Eastern Europe in the 90s. The first thing they do is play together, music. That's the only way you can heal. And I think people underestimate, even nowadays in, in COVID times where everybody is isolated, the way you, you know... Um, The way you go through your days with music, with literature, with art, with movies, you know, it's all culture. It's the biggest thing. And, um, you know, it's not a, culture is not an ornament of society. Like economy is everything. And then you have some ornaments, which is music and some other stuff, paintings. It's actually the, the fundamental thing under society is culture. That's what we need. And if we lose it, Which, uh, which is like a danger right now. We actually lose civilization. Okay, I'm just going to ask you one thing on that, even though I agree with pretty much all of that. You're telling me, though, in 1988 and in 2010, when the Dutch national team won the Euro Cup and was in the World Cup finals, that didn't unite the country more. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. I was about to say. <laughs> Don't insult my boy Robert. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, of course. You know, there's there's sentiment in sports. That's and we nowadays it's Max Verstappen. You know, the the Formula One uh, uh, driver. It's it's uh, of course, of course. But you know, if you um, well, there's so so many. You know, if it comes to uh, you know spiritual spiritual. Um, events it's nine out of ten things you know times that's that's a that's a concert you know i i remember the first time i uh i heard wayne shorter in 1986 with his own band first time he came by with his own band i think with gary willis and tom brechtlein and some people you know he played a concert and he opened the concert with a song called um, Plaza Real, which is actually on the repertoire of Better Report. It's like a 12-bar, beautiful, harmonically little thing. And Wayne just played this little melody for 20 minutes in a row uh, with practically no variation. And the band was just intensifying and intensifying. And after 20 minutes, everybody just exploded. You know, that, that, that is a, a spiritual thing. I learned so much from that solo. So don't go up. 
Don't start to play more notes. No, just intensify. That's all you need to do. That knocked me out so much that I didn't listen to music for two weeks after it, just trying not to lose what I've learned during that concert. Okay. So, I don't know where to lead off that. That's actually another good thing that <laughs> I never experienced, so I can't. Okay, let's go to this. Let's ask this. You're an older person. Nothing wrong with that. And you've been <laughs> in the scene. You listen to these guys, the legends and everything, right? Yeah. Don't you think that hurts older people from, I wouldn't say <sighs> investing or just giving younger artists a chance? Because you heard people at such a high level. Yeah. Well, um, because another thing I put on that is like a lot of the older musicians rather listen to kind of blue. I mean, not musicians, fans yeah. rather listen to kind of blue 200 times. Yeah. Then go buy a brand new album from a new artist. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I think it's wrong just to listen to stuff that you like. I think that is, um, I actually have a course on that too with students. So they, you have to understand that there is a lot of music and that you have to have a, a perspective that is as broad as possible. And the thing with people when they get older, they have the habit of going back in their previous taste. And in the end, they only listen to Duke Ellington and Miles Davis, for instance, because that's the best there is and everything else is less brilliant. I don't listen that way to music. You know, of course I know Kind of Blue. And of course I know the work of Duke Ellington. But, you know, um, I try to listen to stuff that I don't know as much as I can so I can learn something. Because life is about learning. That's the whole, you know, you have to develop your curiosity and try not to lose it because it's the source of everything that you do. So, you know, if you have a lack of inspiration, that comes because there's a lack of input. So you need to keep on listening. Also, sometimes things are really good, but you don't understand why. You know, uh, for instance, Neil Young. Mm -hmm. He just knocks me out. I find it very hard to explain why. Besides the fact that it, he seems to be true, in a way. But musically, you know, what can I do with Neil Young? That's pretty, uh, that's a, uh, pretty much a challenge. It's the same with, uh, you know, there's music that I actually don't like. But I do listen to them because there's a very particular little layer that I might need somewhere in the future. Um, I learned this from a producer that I worked with for one of my albums. I never worked with a producer instead of this one album. And he was a guy from pop music. And he kept sending me all kinds of recordings. And 90% was like, you know, rubbish. Um, and, and we had a lot of discussions about it, but he actually learned me in a couple of years also to, to listen to stuff that I don't immediately like because you have to keep up with the times you live in. And for jazz especially, you know, if you look at what Ellington did and later on Herbie Hancock did and all these people, Joe Zawinul, they um, incorporated present developments immediately and they did very wisely. And, and jazz is like, it's always been a mixture of all kinds of musical cultures and, and, and people and nationalities and everything. It's just a mixture. And that is the power of jazz. So if you want to keep it as a power, you have to keep moving. So what I say basically is, you know, there's, there's always this discussion. Uh, like 
between people that move ahead and incorporate pop elements. And there's a lot of criticism from the conservative side of jazz music. Well, you shouldn't do that. And you should protect the tradition. But I think the tradition protects itself. It's strong enough not to disappear. You just have to try to incorporate everything that you can find that you like, because jazz always did that, which is one of the great things, because, you know, um, with other folk music, this never happens. It always stays the same. Only jazz has the ability to change, which I think is so remarkable. So, yes, you should listen as an older musician to modern stuff. And if you don't really like it, listen again. Try to figure out where young people are listening to. I can't expect from my students that they understand anything that Miles did because they never heard him. You know, they only see small video clips or they, they download his repertoire. But it's different if you're there. And nowadays, you know, this man, uh, Kawashi Washington, you know, he uh, there's a lot of criticism on what he's doing. And actually, I went to a concert of him because he played the same festival as I did last year. And uh, I really liked what he did. He might not be the greatest saxophone player in the world right now. But, you know, that's not what it's about. He just has an idea in his head, what he wants to do. And he does it very successfully and with a, a very, in a very sympathetic way. And, you know, he's playing for like eight or 9,000 people. What could be possibly wrong with that? That's a good thing. So, you know, he has my support because, you know, he reaches out to a lot of people. And maybe one, you know, a couple of hundred in that audience will get into jazz more deeply. So he always does something positive. You know, it always has a positive influence. That was a far better answer than I could have ever expected. I actually <laughs> probably use that as a soundbite. It would probably make a lot of old timers in jazz forms upset. But, <laughs> dude, I can't agree with you anymore. Like, literally. And then no. I know the people who hate on modern music, but let's use Jay-Z and Beyonce. I know people don't like them. I have nothing against them, but they're selling out arenas. That means they're 80,000 plus people buying yeah, their so tickets. There must be something good about it. There's you know? something it's good about it. And I'll be honest with you. I went to her last concert. Yeah. I took my cousins and my then girlfriend. Yeah. I did not see anything good about Beyonce. I didn't get it. I, I mean, she looks great, but I didn't get it. But, you know, at the end of the day, she mm -hmm. sells more albums in a minute than yeah. I did in my whole career. Yeah. So. Well, well, you know, then you should, you know, listen again. It's like with the Beatles or with ABBA, you know, the Swedish band that everybody disliked back then. But, you know, it must be good stuff if every song that you record becomes a number one. There's no other way. Well said. Well said. <laughs> I think uh, Jay-Z never had an album that did not go platinum. Yeah. You know, another, another example for me is uh, Lady Gaga, you know? Um, I saw her in Ghent, which is a very small place in Belgium. They have a festival sort of like North Sea, but, you know, way smaller. And she did a concert with Tony Bennett. You know, a very uncomfortable uh, combination, it seems, on paper. And she just knocked me out. Really, really good with a really good voice, you know. Uh, people on that level who are operating on that level usually are really, really good. There's no, there's no other way. 
I agree. And the fact that she even wrote the stuff too means that she obviously knows a lot more about music than any of us could give her credit for. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain. And it's just, there's a lot of jealousy, I guess. And of course there's marketing, there's money. Oh, well, they have a different level of marketing than any jazz artist, even the top, top, top. But at the same time, I agree with you. A lot of it is jealousy because at least yeah. in New York, the pinnacle point is like Birdland or Blue Note and all those things. And what do they hold at the most? 200 people? Yeah. Yeah. I think Lincoln Center holds, I don't know how much Lincoln Center holds. And if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to get an email on that. But yes. Well, <laughs> you know, it's it's like, uh, you know, in Holland, you uh, it just stopped. But you had for, for 15 years a very, very popular talk show. And, um, and but of course, more or less commercial. And they asked me to play there many, many times. So you just had like one and a half minute to play something. Uh, or I was a guest and I just had four minutes to say something. So, you know, it was not very deep, but I reached 1.5 million people every time I was there. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> if you compare that with jazz concerts, you know, in Holland, when I play somewhere, it's between 300 and 400 people. Well, you, f- you figure out how many concerts I need to do in Holland every year to reach 1.5 million people, you know? That is the difference. So if you find any way to reach these people, you should do it, no matter what kind of music you make. Well, you jazz know, artists are also, at least a lot that I know, are not really good at promoting and marketing themselves. So that's a whole different thing, too. It is very difficult. And it's not that I'm smart at it, you know? It's just I've been lucky a couple of times. Um, because it is difficult and it becomes more and more difficult because people don't want to touch instrumental music, especially. They don't like it. They're afraid it's too complicated or too many notes. So, you know, maybe we should find ways to make jazz attractive again for a broader audience. Well, jazz music used to be the pop music of the world, right? I know. This is something I tell people all the time. Even when a lot of these classic albums were being produced, yeah. it was still fairly popular. It was on mainstream. At least in America, the only time I really hear jazz music on the mainstream radio is during Christmas. Yeah, right. So unless all these artists are going to start writing Christmas arrangements or songs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, the people used to dance on jazz music. And up until the end of the 50s even, you know, jazz music was really popular. It just changed when rock and roll got in. Yeah. (laughs) And then... um, well, everybody knows how smart Davis was with, uh, you know, how to move on. But there are people who hated his style after that. Oh, man. It's the greatest trumpet playing that I ever heard from him. The beginning of the 70s. That's, that's incredible. From 1969 until 1973 or something. The 72, I guess. That is, I try to explain to people, well, it's maybe not the classic kind of blue that everybody was talking about. Or milestones. Um, but trumpet-wise... He rose above the instrument in those years. And what I mean by that is that if you listen to him, you don't hear a trumpet, actually. You hear Miles Davis. No. That is the, well that, said. You know, that I find that so incredible, such an example on how you should deal with music. Raise above the instrument. You know, he, he, all the glissandis he plays on his trumpet in those years, around 70 especially, because he was so healthy in those years. You know, he didn't drink, he didn't use drugs, he was just tea and herbs and stuff. Um, he was just playing incredible trumpet. And I think in those years they recorded Jack Johnson. You remember that record? Yes. Was, um, uh, they're playing a blues 
I think it's Michael Hannison on bass. Correct. And uh, in E. And then uh, John McLaughlin, who is there too, tries to communicate to uh, the bass player, Mike Hannison, that they go to B flat. But he doesn't hear it because he's probably stoned or something, just getting into it. And uh, <laughs> so they move on to a different key, and Michael Hannison just stays in E. Miles opens up this trumpet solo with a D flat. And what follows is probably one of the best trumpet solos I ever heard in my life. And that is in 1972 or something, you know. Uh, it's just that, that it, it's not a regular setup with, you know, set changes, two, five, ones or whatever. And, and with a ding, 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 ding in the background. But there are more ways to make uh, great music. And I agree with you more than ever, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's really. so much great stuff, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like, I used to read that, uh, I had these old, um, you know, Downbeat, you're, you're, you're the, the American magazine. Yes, I know Downbeat very well. <laughs> All these great records that are now like, you know, considered to be the greatest records, like Herbie Hancock's Sunlight, for instance. Mm-hmm. He got one star. For Tell me record. about it. Thank you. One star. You're the first person to say that. And I made that point numerous times. It is, you know, and it's just because they thought it was a commercial downfall for a jazz piano player to play music like that. But if you listen to the record, when that came out, man, I went out of my head. And and when the youngest generation now, when I teach them and I put on sunlight, they they all fall off their chair. They just think, man, this is great, great stuff. And so it turns out that, you know, a lot of reviewers are way behind the actual, you know, thing. The same happened to Weather Report. When Black Market and Happy Weather was released, they were both you know, got very, very bad reviews. Dude, I could say that about people who were releasing albums in the 90s and 2000s. We had, I had a guy that came on that sold 2 million albums, swing, ska style, and I can't find a single review of his stuff in any jazz magazines. Yeah. And this is one of the guys that really got me into swing music. Yeah. And like, it's just whatever. Well, that tells you something about these reviews, doesn't it? Yes, uh, that's a whole... <laughs> other conversation <laughs> but yeah you i normally try not to let an episode go this long you and i could talk for hours on this yeah, man. please let the people know where to find you your social media your email all that stuff go please okay well you can find me uh well i have a website yuriharding.com that's y-u-r-i-h-o-n-i-n-g i'm on spotify best way to look is yuri harding acoustic quartet that's where you know my most recent albums are uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I have an art space even, I think, over there. Uh, more, that's more or less uh, That's more or less, uh, less it. So I hope everybody who listens to this uh, great podcast will contact me so we can continue the conversation. And hopefully, Leonard, we can, we can meet at I'm, some point. I'm bringing you back on again because, like I said, you were hitting some points that I say to people and they don't get. But, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm here for you, man. Just uh, you can call me anytime. Likewise. Well, everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you, and have a good night. Have okay, a good thank night. you too. Bye. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.